Well, this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to two passages? Number one, Matthew chapter 6, where we've been camping out for the last few weeks, and then Revelation 21. Someone just got excited, like, finally we're going through Revelation. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to be interpreting locusts and signs and stuff like that, but Revelation is a book that speaks really specifically to prayer. And uh, we've been going through the series, Pray First, and uh, really, it, it's so timely, because I don't know if you all know, but today, Radiant Church is four years old. Amen. Four years ago, we were a group of about 20 people who had a dream and a vision and nothing else. And <laughs> that was it. And uh, I remember setting up with the team that morning and we're praying and, you know, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know how to preach. I don't know how to pastor. I don't know anything. Uh, and so it's miraculous to still see. I think there's two families that are still with us from our first Sunday, <laughs> which... Uh, God bless you that we're still here from all that time when we had no idea what we were doing and we made every mistake that you can possibly make. But God's been in this and he's done something incredible because 80% of all churches close within the first five years. 80%. The odds are stacked against you when you go out and decide that you're going to start a church. But despite the fact that we made every mistake in the book, God took a group of 20 people and his four years has turned it into 200 people. And it's because of the fact that we committed ourselves to prayer above everything else. For a year before we moved to this city, we were gathering in a room on Tuesday nights. We prayed for two and a half, three hours. We just prayed, God, we have no idea what we're doing. We're real honest with him. I encourage you, be honest with God when you pray because he knows anyways. You can't fake it with God. Amen. God, I'm just full of faith and confidence and boldness. He's like, no, you're not. You're scared. But we were just real honest before God. And we said, God, we have no idea what we're doing. We're underqualified. Uh, we're certainly under-talented. We're not smart enough to do this. Certainly not good enough looking. But we believe that this is what you've called us to. And we believe that you are the God of the impossible. And that whatever you've called us to do, if we will be faithful and obedient in doing it, then you are going to put your hand on it and you're going to accomplish your will through it. So we got together and we prayed our hearts out. We prayed for the city. We prayed for the marriages of the city. We prayed for healing for people in the city. We prayed for people from the different faiths that are already here, that they would have revelation of Jesus and that they would come to know him. And we've seen um, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, self-righteous Christians, and everybody else decide to make decisions to follow Jesus. And we've seen healings, we've seen marriages restored. Uh, we have seen God do above and beyond what we ever even hoped. We prayed with faith, but God met that faith with things that just blew us away. Yeah. And that's what he always does. And we're committed to prayer as Radiant Church. And that's why I'm gonna continue to teach on prayer because the only way that this church is ever gonna be who it is that God's called us to be, the only way that you as individuals will be the people that God's called you to be and accomplish all of the things that you were called to do because I believe the Bible says you were created to do good works in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the earth were laid. It's not just the lead pastors and worship leaders. Every single one of us were called to do miraculous, world-changing history making things to the power of Christ in us if we will be obedient and if we will seek God in the place of prayer. Amen. That's all it takes. Be obedient, listen to God, and do what he says. It's the easiest slogan in the entire world, but that's all that it takes, and so we're committed to prayer, and when you, we all take hold of this, it is going to change everything, because as miraculous as it is what God has done in the first four years, this an electric se election season, we're four more years 
We want to see, we can't wait to see what it is that God's going to continue to do through Radiant Church and through all of us as we go into our workplaces and into our families and social interactions and interactions with strangers that we meet on the streets. God is going to continue to build his family because that's what it is. We're Radiant Church, but we're the church of Jesus Christ. We aren't building a radiant kingdom. We are building the kingdom of Jesus. And I'm not the lead pastor of this church. I have a business card. Jesus doesn't need a business card. He is the lead pastor of Radiant Church. And we're all going to follow him in everything that he's called us to. So we're going to continue to pray. And what we want to do is we want to be a people who don't pray as a last resort, but it's our first response. We're going to pray first. That's the whole idea behind this series is making it the first part of our day, the first reaction. When something bad happens in our life, we're going to go to God and pray about it. When something good happens, we're going to go to God and pray about it. When we have to make decisions and we want to praise Him, whatever it is, we want to be a people of prayer. And that's the vision that God has for His family. He says that my house, meaning the church collectively, is going to be a place of prayer for all nations. He doesn't even say it's going to be a place of biblical teaching and expository you know, teaching. That's a good thing, but what we're called to be is a house of prayer and a house of worship. Those are the things that define the church. It's what sets us apart from every other organization on the face of the earth. Because when we pray and when we worship, we encounter the presence of the living God. So the disciples came to Jesus one day, and they recognized that they needed to pray like Jesus does. So they said, Jesus, will you teach us to pray how you pray? And he gives them this pattern for it in chapter 6, uh, verses 19 through 13 of Matthew. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Actually, that's my Methodist roots that just came out. It doesn't say amen, but when we're Methodists, that's what we said every time that we said this. So So what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying this is an incantation. Recite this three times and rub your belly and you're going to get what you asked for. What he's doing is he's giving us a pattern for prayer. It's a model for how we're to pray. Don't pray these exact words, but pray in this manner. Pray like this. And the first thing he says is, our Father in heaven. And what Jesus is saying is that when you pray, connect with God relationally. He's your heavenly Father. That's the way that you approach him. You don't approach him as the all-powerful creator, which he is. You don't approach him as the one that's, you know, unapproachable light, which he is. But he says, when you come to me, when you relate to me, our relationship is I'm your daddy. So you come to me with confidence, you come to me with boldness, and you come to me understanding how much I love you. How faithful I am. How my heart is for you and to provide you with all of the things that you need. And then Jesus says, hallowed be your name. What that means is we worship God, and this is what most of my prayer time is. Probably 75% or more of my prayer time is worshiping God. It's thanking him for who he is. It's thanking him for the things that he's done. And it continues to build my love and my affection for him. When I want to love my wife more, I don't focus on all the things I need or her shortcomings, which God has no shortcomings. But if we just focus on what we need all the time, that doesn't build our love for God. But when you focus on how good he is, how great his love is for us, your heart can't help but be changed. 
So we spend our time to encourage you. Spend most of your time, throw on worship tunes, worship, sing along with them. Make that the majority of your prayer time. It's just worshiping God, connecting with him relationally as your father. And then he says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. And that's praying God's agenda. It's saying, God, I want your will because before I became a Christian, I was living my will. I wanted my will to be done on earth and in heaven. And it didn't work out. It was terrible. I don't want my will. I don't know what I need all the time. But God does. And that's why I say, God, I want your will because you're good, you're faithful, you're perfect, your plans are for me, they're for me to prosper, they're for the entire world to come into alignment with your kingdom. God, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we pray, give us today our daily bread, which means that we're utterly dependent upon God. We don't live in a society where it's a daily bread kind of society. Most of us have more food that we will throw away than most people will see in their entire lifetime. But what it's saying is that, look, we are utterly dependent upon God. Absolutely, completely. We think that we're our own provision. We think because we got a degree or we worked our way up the career chain that now we can provide for ourselves. What you find out when you get sick or when you see someone that's on their deathbed is they're not in control. We are utterly dependent, completely dependent upon God. And we need to recognize that and stay humble in our approach to God. And then he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors, which is God, change our hearts. Because it's not easy to forgive other people. If it was easy to forgive other people, the world would look a lot different than it does right now. I would have cried. I'm not a big crier, but I would have cried a lot less in my life if it was easy to forgive other people. And we can't control what other people do but God can change our hearts. And so that's what we're praying is, God, help me to extend forgiveness to others. God, help me to view people the way that you view them. God, would you work something new and miraculous inside of my heart? And then he ends it with this. We're at the very end now, and he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh my gosh, I have to ask God not to tempt me? Like Jesus, it, it's hard enough when the devil's tempting me. If you're tempting me, there's absolutely no way that I can resist it. Uh, and that's, that's like the thing. It's like, would it be wrong for me to resist God if he was tempting me? If I, if I sin, I know it's wrong, but if I resist God, isn't that wrong as well? Or you might say, God, why on earth is it that you call me to be sexually pure, but you pump me full of hormones and surround me with beautiful people? Like, God, that's just not fair. Why on earth did you do this? Why are you tempting me, God? But what we need to know is that God doesn't tempt us. It says this in James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being, being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, God isn't like us. He's so holy, he's so good, he's so pure that he's above even the possibility of being tempted. And he also will never tempt us. It would violate his character, it would violate his nature. It's an impossibility for God to tempt us. So then why does Jesus say that we have to pray, don't lead us into temptation? It seems like a contradiction. Well, what we don't understand because we're so far removed from the culture and the language in which it's being written is that Jesus is really speaking to the condition of our hearts. 
It's not that we're like trying to convince God, God, please don't tempt me. You know I'm, I'm weak and I can't handle it. What God is saying is that we pray, God, would you lead us away from the temptation? Because the natural inclination of my heart, because I'm a sinful, fallen person, is that when I follow what naturally comes to me, when I follow my feelings and my own plans and my best ideas, I'm going to be tempted by wrong desires, which is going to lead me to sin, and ultimately it's going to lead me to death. And so what Satan does, being incredibly smart, is he knows that as a fallen creature, you have these wrong desires inside of you. And so he begins to put these ideas and thoughts into your mind to act on these desires that you have. And that's in every single one of us. I love watching kids because there's such a, an uh, inhibition-free uh, example of what the human condition really is. So what happens is a kid, they're sitting there and they see someone else playing with a toy, it entices them. They have a natural desire for it. And so what do they do? They go and they try to take that toy away from the other kid. Now, just having the desire to say, hey, that's a really sweet toy. There's nothing wrong with that. But I know that I need to control myself and not go after this. I'll just wait till they're done playing with it, and then I'll play with it. That never happens. <laughs> never happens. They go there, they try to pull it away, then the other kid's fighting back, and there's screaming, there's crying, there's pinching, biting, scratching, uh, bladder control issues. It's... It's terrible. And they just continue to fight because we see enticement coming to them, which then leads them to sin and ultimately leads them to destruction if we don't intervene as parents. And that also is something that you see happen. Just because we grow up doesn't mean that we're not tempted to take things that aren't ours anymore. Our, we have jails because people like to take things that aren't theirs. And we have companies that are full of people who haven't been caught but they're taking things that aren't theirs because they're enticed. We have marriages. 50% of all marriages have a point in them where someone looks at someone that's not their spouse and they go and they take something that isn't theirs to take. Just because we grow up doesn't mean that our hearts have really changed. It doesn't mean that we're not still continually tempted. It doesn't mean that Satan isn't trying to entice us and continue to cause us to sin. That's what our hearts are. That's what we need to be led away from because that's what's always going to happen to us. Or you might even say, well, you know, I'm incredibly spiritual. I, am, I, I don't take things from people. That's not what I struggle with. Uh, I have an enlightened heart. Well, let me ask you this, and this is, I'll, I'll get really un-PC here, we're going to go into a hot topic. How do you, in your heart, as a mature Christian believer, feel about ISIS? I think we can all agree they're a pretty terrible organization. We don't agree with their values, their bylaws, their founding documents, whatever. They're a terrible group of people that are bringing so much death, so much hurt, and so much destruction into this world. They're as opposed to God as you can get. So what's the natural inclination of your heart towards ISIS? I tell you what both political parties think is that we need to destroy them. That you hear people like, we need to turn their sand to glass, kill every last one of them. We need to bring righteous fury down upon them. But is that the gospel response? That's the heart response. That's every single one of us. When you see the way that they're torturing people and killing them and what they're doing to women and children, that you can't tell me that your heart's like, oh, bless them, Jesus. I want to lay my life down for them so that they might know the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not the inclination of our hearts. We want them destroyed. But that's evil inside of us. 
That's not the gospel response. That's not the God response. You know what the gospel response is? is it says that we're supposed to pray and to bless our enemies. We're supposed to love those who hate us and would persecute us. We're supposed to lay our own lives down so that they can know Jesus. But is your natural inclination of your heart, I need to go and die for these people so that they can see the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. That's not the natural desire of my heart because there's still evil in me. And I'm enticed to sin. But we have to allow our hearts to be changed and to be remade into the gospel response to these things. We can't follow the desire of our heart. Or even this, let me ask you, would you have even cared at all about any Muslims? Would they be on your radar at all if it weren't for ISIS and the threat that you perceive them to pose on you and your family and your way of life? I think most people would never, ever think about someone of another religion as long as they're being peaceful, not interfering with our life. We don't care. And that's, you know, that's the PC thing now. It's like, hey, all religions are great and they're all so good and they're beautiful and all this stuff. You know what? That's not the gospel response. You know what we believe? Is that that's evil too. If that's in our heart, if we don't care about someone of another religion as long as they aren't messing with our life and we're happy to watch them live a Christless life and go into a Christless eternity, then that's an evil response in our hearts as well. Because every belief system that sets itself up to oppose Jesus is evil. It doesn't mean that the people are evil, but they're living in bondage because they've been believing a lie that Jesus came to set them free from. And we've been empowered, we've been called to go and in love and in grace and mercy preach the gospel so that all people of all faiths and of no faith can come to an understanding of how great God's love is for them, that there is forgiveness of sins, that we have a heavenly Father who loves us and who gave himself up for us so that we might receive his life. And that's our response. That's the gospel response, but it's not the inclination of our hearts. This is what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It doesn't say that we need some better techniques to control and to keep our hearts in check. It says that our hearts are deceitful and it's beyond cure. There's nothing that we can do to make our hearts right. It says in Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Our hearts will always lead us into temptation. And you've seen it happen again and again in your life. How many times were you, your heart was just so sure of something only to find out it was completely wrong and it led you to ruin and to destruction? We can't trust our hearts. That's the anti-American like ideal. We're always like, you gotta follow your heart. You gotta be true to yourself. You gotta be who you are. No, who I am is terrible. <laughs> My heart does nothing but bring me heartache. And I can't deliver myself from this situation. And that's why we need deliverance. Yes. That's why the next part of the prayer is after, lead us not into temptation, is but deliver us from the evil one. Because every single one of our hearts needs deliverance from the condition in which we were born into. Every one of our hearts needs deliverance from the evil desires that we have inside of us. And it's something that we cannot save ourselves from. 
We all struggle with sin in our life, whether it be you know, lust or pride, greed, anger, hate, jealousy, gossip, sexual immorality, you name it, whatever it is, as long as you are walking on this earth, you are going to continue to have evil inclinations inside of your heart that you cannot control yourself, that you cannot change yourself. You need Jesus to deliver you. The imagery here is going back to when God led the Hebrew people out of Egypt. They were living there as slaves. There was nothing they could do. They were in bondage. They were in chains. They had no say over what was going on in their own life. But God came and he miraculously delivered them up out of the land of Egypt and led them into the promised land. He gave them new life. He gave them new identity. And that's what every single one of us needs is we're living in bondage to sin. We're living in chains to sin. We can't break them if we wanted to. How many times have you met someone and there's a sin issue in their life and they're not a believer and they keep trying to fight against it and break it but they can't because they're a slave. No matter how much you want to break free of this sin issue, you cannot do it of your own power. It's not inside of you because you have a master that is over you. It takes the miraculous power of God coming and breaking the chains of bondage inside of your life and freeing you and leading you into a promised land and giving you new identity, giving you new life. That's what every single one of us needs. We need deliverance from the sin issues inside of our life. And that's what Jesus came to give us. Because what Jesus does is when he went to the cross for our sins, took on all the sin of humanity, everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do, he took that to the cross and when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and gave you new life. And if you have new life, you have a new identity. And though you might have been a slave to sin, that's not who you are anymore. Jesus broke those chains, every single one of them over your life, and now you have the ability to live in the freedom that God has given you. We used to be a people that no matter how much we wanted to live a, a righteous life, we couldn't. And now we're a people because of Jesus that we have the ability to live a life free from sin. And when Jesus returns one day and we have new glorified bodies and his kingdom is fully here, we won't even have the ability to sin. And that's what I'm looking forward to. But right now in the life that you're living, with the sin issue that you're dealing with and every single one of us has them, Jesus has the ability to deliver you from that. You need to stop trying to fight of your own power and your own ability. It's not that you need better discipline. It's not that you need better coping skills. Discipline is a part of this, but you can't break those chains on your own. But Jesus can. And Jesus has. And that's why we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because we need to be led a new way. We need to be delivered from the sin issues in our lives. And then he says this, he wraps up the prayer by saying, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And what that means is that our faith and confidence is fully in God. That's how we leave our place of prayer. Every time when we get done praying, it's not like, okay, I made a wish upon the star, please Jesus, let it come true. It's that, no God, my faith and my confidence is fully 100% in you because I know that you're able to do above and beyond anything that I ever can imagine to ask for because I know that the kingdom is yours. I know that all power is yours and all glory is yours forever. 
Now, it's easy to leave the place of prayer with that kind of confidence the first time you pray for something. The first time you pray, you're like, Jesus, would you do this? I know that you can do it. I believe you're going to do it. But what happens the hundredth time you're praying for something and you're still waiting on God? Amen. What happens the thousandth time that you're still praying for God to answer this? Are you still walking out of the place of prayer with that same confidence in him? and in his ability to be your deliverer, in his ability to be the one that is your provider, in his ability to bring his will about on the face of the earth. What happens when the person who's sick who you've been praying for dies? What happens when your marriage falls apart? When your business fails? What happens when the dream that you had in your heart is broken? Are you still able to have the confidence in God and who he is and his ability to bring about everything that you've asked for. So every one of us have had those broken moments in our life. We've had those moments where you feel like God's failed, where the prayer hasn't been answered. You don't see how everything could ever be right again. But here's how we can put our faith and our confidence fully in God, regardless of what it is that we're seeing around us. And it comes from the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, John's been having a prophetic vision of the future that awaits all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And this is what it says in verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That's us. We're the bride. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's the hope that every single one of us has. And let me tell you this, every prayer that you pray the answer to it ultimately fully awaits the return of Jesus and the fullness of his kingdom. Every prayer that you pray. Some of the hardest things that I've had to do in my life is when I'm sitting with someone as we're watching a loved one pass from this life into eternity. And that prayer isn't answered. In my own family, having lost my father-in-law, my family having been affected by suicide and other tragic losses like that. And you wonder, God, how can my heart ever be made whole again? God, what is the hope that I have? God, what's the answer to this prayer as I've watched this person perish? God, as I've watched this marriage fall apart and I didn't see what it was that I was asking for, God, how do I reconcile that you are good? How do I reconcile that your prayers, that our prayers are answered, that you are a good father? God, how do I reconcile all of these things with the incredible heartache and the pain that we see in the world around us. It's because we know that the 80 or so years that if we're lucky we have on this earth pale in comparison to what it is that awaits us. 
every time I read that verse where God says, behold, I make all things new, every time I tear up because I think of every hurt I've had, every person that I've lost, every time I've seen where, I, where it didn't seem like God was victorious in it. And I see the promise that we have that every tear will be wiped away, that there's going to be new creation, that all pain and all sickness is going to be gone forevermore. We will never grieve again. That's the hope. That's the promise that we have. That's why we go so confidently into the place of prayer because our confidence isn't fully in what God's going to do right here because even if he heals you, you're still going to die. Even if he saves your marriage, it's still going to be messed up at some point again. That's what our salvation is. The salvation isn't that we pray a prayer, a magical prayer, and now, yay, we're on our way to heaven. Salvation is when Jesus brings new creation, when he makes all things new, when sickness and death and hurt and pain are all put away forever. That's what salvation looks like. That's what we're waiting for. And it isn't just that it happens up in heaven someday. It's that all things are made new here on earth and in our hearts and in our bodies. That's the hope that we have as Christians. That's the message that we have to proclaim to all people. That's the comfort that we have as we grieve and as we hurt ourselves. And every time that I go through one of the hard seasons in my life, this verse continually comes to me. It says in Romans 8, chapter 18, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Listen, Jesus never promised us that life was going to be easy. He told us the opposite. The life verse that you can put on your refrigerator is that in this world you will have trials and tribulations. But I've overcome the world. Listen, I don't know what hurts you've been going through in life. I don't know the heartaches that you have. But Jesus does. And it says that he bottles your tears. Every one of them is precious to him. And he's not coming just to make things better. He's coming to make all things new. And the heartache that you've gone through and that you're going through right now won't even be a memory when we enter into eternity and we for the first time get a glimpse of how good God's glory is when God lives with his people. It says that in the new creation there is no sun, there's no light because the glory of God is the source of light. That's what my hope is in. And that's why every time when I finish my prayer and I say amen, I walk away with peace and joy and confidence because I know that he's overcome. And I know no matter what I see on this earth, all things will be made new. Would you pray with me this morning? It's so important that we take a moment to hear from God and what it is that he's speaking to us. So Father, would you speak to us this morning?
God, would you show us the areas where we've been led into temptation over and over again, and we need your deliverance. Jesus, would you spotlight that in our hearts now? Would you speak that to us? And not so that we would feel condemned or ashamed about it because we know the place that our deliverer is coming to free us from. And as God's put that on your heart, I want you to pray this. Say, Father, deliver me from this evil. Break this chain over this area of sin in my life. Bring me freedom. Bring me life. Bring me your strength to stand against the temptation, to resist the enemy by your grace and by your power. Jesus, would you confirm that in every heart that just prayed that, that they're free, that they're broken over them. Maybe this morning you need the hope of the new creation. There's an area of hurt, of heartache inside of you because of something that hasn't gone the way that you had hoped. And you maybe you feel like God's failed in this area or it's just so incredibly raw and broken. God, for every heart right now, would you give them a glimpse of glory, a hope of glory? Would you confirm to them that all things will be made new? that their tears will be wiped away by you, that God himself is going to wipe away the tears and to comfort them. Or maybe this morning you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. But you want that hope. And this morning you just say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Give me new life. Change my heart. Jesus, I make you my Lord. Speak to me, and I'll be obedient to everything that you call me to, to follow everything that you speak to me. And surround me with people who will encourage me. God, send me the Holy Spirit to strengthen me, to change me, to minister to me, to fill me with gifts and with power. But today I'm yours forevermore, never to turn back. Father, would you continue to advance your kingdom in our city? God, would you continue to reach to the lost, to the hurting, to the broken? And Jesus, bring us the hope of glory. God, we pray for a harvest in our city, that thousands of people, God, that you would continue to use Radiant Church in the next four years, God, even more powerfully than you have in the first. Jesus, that we'd see more people come to the hope that's found in you, more marriages restored, more people healed, more broken lives mended, God, more and more people coming before you and declaring that you alone are God and all of our heart is for you. Jesus, we pray for your anointing over us. God, we pray for your wisdom, God. We pray for your vision in everything that we do. God, build us up to be those who are messengers of life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to worship this morning. I encourage you, just let God continue to speak to you as we remember his goodness.